So we are looking at the passage of Scripture in Matthew 17 about the transfiguration, uh, which is a, a kind of a cool scene. So I'm just going to start out. I'll just read the first few verses and we'll get into it. Uh, so it says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James and John, the brother of James, and led them up a mountain, a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. And just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. So Moses and Elijah are the, uh, the stand-ins for the law and the prophets. So they are, there's something representative about them in this uh, event. And in, in the story, we also get this idea that Matthew is presenting Jesus, and this is something that happens in all the Gospels, John does it especially, as a, a Moses. So we have Jesus up on this mountain, like Moses went up to Mount Sinai, uh, and uh, Jesus is up on a high mountain. He's taken three people, uh, and uh, Moses took a few of his fellas, and then there was all the elders as well, and they get up to the top of this mountain, and uh, with Moses, you know, there was the, the cloud and then he shone and reflected like uh, the glory of God. And now Jesus is the, the radiance of God's glory. So we see that happening. So there is this kind of uh, parallel uh, thing happening here that reflects an Old Testament story in Jesus. And one of the things that the, uh, when we talk about prophecy, a lot of the time people think about prophecy like a crystal ball. But, you know, like predicting the future. But in the rabbinic kind of tradition, in the Jewish worldview, uh, prophecy was more when they said that Jesus fulfilled something. It wasn't so much that they had predicted it and Jesus did it. They're saying there is this thing that we have recorded in the, in the Old Testament or in the, the Hebrew scriptures that is now being reflected fully in the life of Jesus. So it's the fulfillment is not that it was prophesied and is being now done. It's that this is something we talked about in the past that Jesus is showing us the supreme example of. That's what it is, the fulfillment. It was prophesied. And so the rabbinic tradition is we would, that's how they characterize prophecy far more often than some, like I said, crystal ball kind of thing. It is more like a narrative foreshadowing. That's exactly right. So here, Moses foreshadowed something, which is why we find in Hebrews that language um, of things being foreshadowed and then being fulfilled. And we've been talking about that in the context of the, uh, the Beatitudes and Jesus saying, you've heard this and now I'm showing you this. So Jesus is saying the law was this, this, uh, this skeleton with the law kind of hanging on it, but now I'm bringing flesh to it. I'm filling out the law. And now you can see what it should truly look like. And so on this mountain that he has taken his disciples, Jesus truly shows us not just a reflected glory. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the full representation, the imprint, the stamp of Jesus, of God's full being. So here on this mountain, though, we have Moses and Elijah. They turn up. Uh, both of them have been up the mountain. So it wasn't just Moses. Elijah also went up the mountain. He came out of his cave because the, 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 you know, God was going to pass by. And Jesus is transformed before them. And the word, the Greek word here, uh, you'll understand it. It's metamorphos, uh, metamorpho, uh, like we get our word metamorphos. He's transformed. Uh, this is the only other time uh, I think this word is used is in Romans uh, I think it's Romans 12, where it says, be renewed by the transforming of your mind, by the metamorphosis, by the, the growing and, and changing of your mind. 
So Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Because Peter's just so excited uh, and he, he can't cope with the silence. So he's just so excited that, that all these guys are here. This is like the ultimate uh, expression. Now, you got to remember Jesus, uh, just prior to this, has asked his disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter's like, oh, you're the Messiah. And it's all very exciting. I mean, there was the whole stand behind me Satan incident, but this is exciting stuff. And now it's all happening. But Peter has still got his picture of what the kingdom to come will look like in mind. And in his picture, it's the, the Jewish picture of a warlord that comes and subjugates Rome, uh, in this case, the, the power that would overcome them. And so he raises up a new uh, leader. And in that, Peter is hoping that not only will they build three ten, uh, tents there for these guys, he probably wants a war room. He wants something to plan their takeover of the world. He's excited. It's finally happening. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. They saw no one except Jesus. See, Moses was gone. Elijah was gone. The time of the law and the prophets had come to a close and the time of the kingdom of God was at hand. It was the beginning of a new season. It was the beginning of a new kingdom. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This echoes the words that we saw at the beginning uh, in Jesus' baptism. The same thing when the, the, the clouds crack open and the dove descends and God speaks, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. But this time God adds uh, a small refrain. He says, listen to him. Listen to him. I know you've listened to Moses and I know you've listened to Elijah. In the past, I have spoken to uh, your ancestors through the prophets and in many times and in many, many ways. That's the, the opening of Hebrews. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. And this is what God is saying. This is my son in whom I am proud. I am well pleased and you should listen to him. Anytime there is any question about which uh, uh, answer is right, about whose authority we should be following, about whose interpretation or whatever it is, go to Jesus. He's the one we listen to. If there's any uh, tradition or opinion or practice that we need to make sure we highlight and understand, it is the ones we find in Christ. Listen to him. So if Moses tells you that we should stone the sinner and Jesus says that we who with, without sin should cast the first stone, then we listen to Jesus. And if Elijah calls fire down from heaven on his enemies, and, but Jesus says that we should love our enemies, it is Jesus that we listen to. And it's not because Jesus has come to eradicate the law. It's because he has come to fulfill it. He has come to put flesh on the bones of, of what it truly is, that God's purpose in the earth. He is the radiance of God's glory, and he is the true representation of God's being. And everything else that came before is but a shadow. And in this way, there are many things in the Bible that we can call biblical that we cannot rightly call Christian. 
This is a, a phrasing that Brian Zand uses, uh, and I'll quote him. He says, wars of conquest, capital punishment, violent retribution, the institution of slavery, and women held as property are all biblical. But when seen in the light brighter than the sun shining from the face of Christ, everything must be reevaluated because Jesus is what God has to say. And thank goodness for that, right? Because there are a whole bunch of things when poorly understood, when taken out of their culture, when manipulated and tortured and beaten, can, the Bible can say awful, awful things. And it can lead to a practice that is not healthy and glorious and wonderful. It can lead to a whole bunch of things that are controlling and manipulative and awful. And if we pretend that's not true, then we misrepresent it. The good news is, though, that Jesus comes as the ultimate fulfillment and expression of that. And he shows us what it truly should have looked like all along. There are many things that the Bible actually says, and even more that can be tortured out of its pages that cannot be considered consistent with the life of Jesus. Bad exegesis and interpretation can easily create false gospels. See, when Jesus was being tempted, the devil came to him with words from Scripture. He came to him with words of scripture to try and manipulate him. It's easy to create false gospels. And in the church, I am uh, saddened by the gospels that I have in the past promoted that I think now fall short of that radiance, that fall short of what Jesus looks like. I've talked about this uh, in the past, but I think for some people, for most people who have spent any length of time in Christendom, they get a kind of false gospel-induced trauma. And, and it can have very real symptoms like PTSD for people. They are triggered by stuff. They are uh, scared of stuff. They are influenced and hurt by stuff that has been said and done by a gospel of power instead of a gospel of humility. There is gospels like the one Peter wanted. Peter wanted to take the authority of heaven like Elijah and send fire on the enemies and destroy uh, the, the Romans and reestablish God's kingdom on earth, the power of Yahweh. And we, we see that reflected today in some Christian ideals that say, oh, we want, do we want to take over society. The mountain peaks of society will take over business and government and media and the arts and entertainment and education, and we will force them to submit to the will of God. And when we can just establish all the rules of the kingdom, then we can destroy and burn the wicked. And it's this gospel of power that is a false gospel. It is not the gospel of the upside down kingdom. It's not the gospel of humility and service and sacrifice that I find in Jesus. And, and tied to this gospel of power, we often see a false gospel of fear where we, we tell people that they are, rather than saying they're born into the image of God and that they are blessed and loved and that they are also sadly uh, bearing a fallen nature, but fundamentally they are God's children. We say to them, fundamentally, you are depraved and broken and God hates you. And that if you don't repent and allow God to torment his own son to deal with his rage, there is this weird gospel of fear where we make it out like the only good thing about Jesus is that he saves us from hell. Instead of recognizing that actually living life to the full, uh, living life uh, knowing that we are loved and that we are made in God's image, that that is the promise of the kingdom, that those who mourn are comforted, that those who are, are broken are made new, that the meek inherit the earth. The kingdom of God is far more than salvation from some kind of um, church in, you know, produced hell. 
We don't need to have a gospel of fear any more than we need a gospel of, of militant power. But there are more subtle uh, perversions that we bring into our theology. A gospel of fame is one of them. I grew up believing that not only did God have a plan and a purpose in my life, but that I would be a history maker, that I would take over the world, that every person in the church was called to an international Billy Graham glorious ministry. We're in the next, all going to be the next Reinhard Bonnke. We're all going to take over uh, for the kingdom of God. And it's just not true. Some of us, most of us, almost all of us, are the people that are not recorded in Scripture. We are the fellow workers. We are the humble servants. We are the people in history that build beautiful communities and love their neighbors and live humble lives. And that is good and that is wholesome and that is faithful. The plan for your life that God has may simply be that you do your best and grow in goodness and kindness and gentleness and self-control. One of the lies that the devil brought to Jesus is that he said, you can turn these rocks into bread. Uh, and he was saying, you have the power. You know, I, I, and he put him on the top of the, the temple. He said, I'll give you the whole world. Just let me raise up a military in your name and we'll take over the world. And Jesus says, no, I'm not into that. But he also said, look at this bread, uh, these rocks, turn it into bread. He's like, together we can save the world. We can feed everyone. And there was a, so the, what the devil was promoting was a gospel of social justice. And I'm all about social justice. We should feed the world. We should save the environment. We should do all that is good. But you see, the devil was saying to Jesus, if you would just do it my way, if you would just worship me, then we can do that. You see, it's not enough. We can't just feed the world. The world does need saving. It does need to know about Jesus. There is something beautiful about his kingdom. And it's not just, like I said, a salvation from some kind of torment. It's a salvation to living a life in full. There is something beautiful about the kingdom of God that needs to be shared. And the saving power of Jesus and his sacrifice on a cross. These are real things that the church is responsible for sharing. So to separate the gospel from caring for the people of the world is a problem. But to also to have a gospel that doesn't care for the world, that only wants to preach some kind of salvation, but doesn't want to love their neighbor is equally a problem. There is a gospel of excellence in some churches where we think that we need to be more excellent at everything than the world. If we're going to have a bigger sound system and a more impressive uh, light show, and a, uh, we can do everything better than the world. That's how we show them that the church is better. And I actually think that we should just do things more kindly, more humbly, more beautifully. I think there is beauty in the kingdom of God and that that beauty does not always translate to excellence. I think on top of the Mount of Transfiguration, we don't know which one it was, maybe Mount Hermon, maybe Mount Tabor, there's arguments for both. I tend towards thinking it was far more north because uh, they've just come from Caesarea Philippi. But on top of that mountain, Peter and his friends are having to put down a whole bunch of they're having to put down a whole bunch of ideas about what the kingdom is like. There is a post uh, transfiguration life in the kingdom of God that we need to work towards. There are things we need to leave behind. We need to leave behind our uh, militant, powerful warlord Yahweh, and we need to leave behind uh, the the gospel of of um, of fear and fame the gospel that separates the love of God uh, from the message of Jesus. We need to 
One of the real challenges I have found is for Peter is that this is an incredible ecstatic experience on top of this mountain. And a lot of Christians don't want to come back down. But uh, that, we get to that in a minute. But there is a, a gospel of ecstatic manifestation that says that you are only a real Christian if you pray in tongues. And you're only a real Christian if you've swung from at least one chandelier. You're only a real Christian if you, have, uh, if you cry a lot in worship or raise your hands in the right uh, angle. Uh, there is something... Uh, about that ecstatic manifestation that is beautiful and incredible and encompassing, and I want that and I need that, and it's uh, been a central part of my faith, but it can't be the end point. There are a lot of people uh, in the generation above mine that are desperate to go back to the charismatic renewal like God doesn't do anything new. And you see, revival doesn't just look like an outpouring of the Spirit. Revival looks like a transformation of our, uh, of our worldview. There is some really bad toxic theology that was around 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago that we are still working out because we are progressing more towards the kingdom of God on earth. So the revival that we need is not just a, a, a manifestational thing. It's also a theological thing, which is what I think is happening here for Peter and uh, James and John on, on top of this mountain. Their worldview is being shifted and their ideas were being shifted. There is a gospel of morality that exists in some uh, places where our salvation and our um, relationship with God and with one another is entirely dependent on following a set of very narrowly defined rules that go way beyond the scope of what the Bible says. But it's all just about power and control and it's not about life and freedom. Let's have two more here. Um, one of them is a gospel of submission. Uh, and I am glad to say that in our community, we promote the opportunity of all people, uh, but especially I think the most oppressed people in history when it comes to a gospel of submission have been women. They're told that you are not um, full members of the kingdom of God. You are just co-members uh, and you have to submit to your husbands and to other men. You can't have any agency in your choices or calling. You can't uh, have any leadership or any teaching gift. You have to just submit to the male authority in your life and be happy with that lot. And I would say that's not what the scripture says uh, in, in the English or in the Greek. Uh, that's not the gospel of submission. We are submitted to Christ and we submit voluntarily to one another in order to serve. Uh, but it's not a controlling, manipulative uh, thing. And the last one on my list here is a gospel of prosperity and tithing. Now, I love uh, the idea of being prosperous, and I think God wants to bless us. But I think to have a rule that says if you behave in a certain way or give in a certain way, then God then translates that into financial blessing for you, then you're in big trouble. There's just so inconsistent with the New Testament church. All of my favorite people in the New Testament church got crucified. None of them got big houses. They gave everything they had and they got killed. Not they gave everything they had and got treasure on earth. We store up our treasure in heaven. Jesus said to the Pharisees that they were still under the law, that they should tithe. And he said to them that they should tithe on their herb garden. If they're going to be legalistic, they should be super legalistic if they think that'll save them. But this is not the teaching of the early church. The early church uh, in 2 Corinthians, it just says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, 
not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So once a year, and we are uh, approaching that time of year, we uh, talk about money. And, and this is my uh, belief about money in the church, uh, that we should give what we have in our heart settled to give, and we should do it generously, and we should do it joyfully. And like a, a person who sows, if you sow out of bitterness or if you sow out of manipulation or you sow um, your financial resources in this community because of guilt or shame or just wanting, you know, I went to a conference one and everyone's like, everyone hold up your gift so everyone can see it. If you're doing it out of peer pressure, if you sow out of all those reasons, you will reap that. You sow in bitterness, you reap in bitterness. You'll go home feeling bitter that you put that money in. You'll go home and it'll grow into even more bitterness. You're not going to get a blessing or prosperity from that giving. You're just going to get cranky. You'll get cranky with whoever it was that tricked you, and you'll get cranky at the theology, you'll get cranky at the church, you'll get cranky at God. I think we should be generous, but I don't think we should be tricked or manipulated. I think you should privately seek God with your partner, seek God, and say, hey, we love what God is doing, and we love being part of this community. And what is it that we can give, and what is it that we should give? And then without reluctance, with joy and without being bullied or pressured, you should give that. At the same time, I want to encourage you that the farmer who sows, he doesn't just sow out of charity. He sows because he needs to eat. He sows because he wants a harvest. In the same way, I don't like the word donation because I don't feel like you donate something when you give to the White House Church. I feel like you sow something in like an investment that you then reap. The money that we sow together, we then are able to spend on uh, charitable and missional projects that we believe in together. We're able to pay for uh, things like microphones and sound equipment, and we're able to pay for you know, my salary because I also like to eat. Uh, we're able to pay for the things that we do together as a community. So when you sow, like a farmer, expect a harvest, not as a donation, but as an investment into something that you benefit from personally and because you want to be able to be part of the giving um, more broadly of this community. So we should give willingly, generously, and without compulsion or guilt, but rather with joy and thanksgiving. So we head back to the mountain. Matthew 17, verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain... Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Now, this might seem like an odd observation to make, but they did, in fact, come down from the mountain. Like I said, they didn't uh, just create a tent and a city and live in the ecstatic experience and sing the chorus 20 more times. They actually had to come down from the mountain. Peter wanted to stay there. And you know what? When I've been in those places of glory, of the radiance of glory, I want to stay there too. But sometimes we also then need to recognize that the work of Jesus' ministry and the work of his death and resurrection didn't happen on that mountain. They happened when he came back down. We can't just permanently wade in the river to go with a different metaphor there. Jesus came down to be among his people and to love them and to continue teaching and to break bread with them and to ultimately allow himself uh, to be crucified so that he could overcome death and overthrow the work of the devil and, and defeat the, the, the consequence of our sin so that we could have eternal life. 
The post-transfiguration life for Christians means walking away from. It means walking down the hill, away from the worldview that we took up to the hill, the one of militant power that would take over the world. It means repenting of that violence and that control and, and patriarchal manipulation. And, and it means repenting of a gospel that promotes bad news as some kind of good news to manipulate people. And it means repenting of a gospel that exclusively promotes personal salvation and morality and ignores corporate repentance and social justice and institutional systemic transformation and the work of the church in society. Post-transfiguration life looks like sacrifice and service and bearing our cross. If we want to be his disciples, we must come down from the mountain and look in people's eyes and sit with people where they are. We must do as Jesus did and wash feet and create spaces where people can be free of condemnation and shame and understand their identity as children who are loved of God. We must feed the hungry and clothe the naked and visit those uh, who are imprisoned. We must love our neighbors, even the ones we don't particularly get along with. We need to learn to open our hearts with compassion towards those who we don't necessarily see eye to eye with. We need to listen better. We need to love our enemies as we love ourselves and as we love God. We need to store up our treasure in heaven and invest it beautifully into the work of the kingdom on earth. We need to be faithful, sacrificial, joyful servants. We need to put down our stones and turn the other cheek and forgive those who've wronged us and always hold on to the truth. And the good news is that these things are best done together. And so we gather together to worship and to pray and to learn and to serve uh, one another uh, and, and to serve in our community as well. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you were transfigured and that you shone not just with reflected radiance, but with the true glory of God. And I pray that we would see that and know who you are and that we would listen to you. And that we would not just listen, but that we would follow. In Jesus' name, amen.